Hello, I'm Michael Heyman, and you're listening to Changemakers. My guest today is Baroness Nicola Blackwood, the chair of Genomics England, which has a mission to turn world-class genomic science into world leadership in genomic medicine. As Minister for Innovation in the Department of Health and Social Care under two Prime Ministers, and having served as the youngest ever Select Committee Chair on the House of Lords Science and Technology Select Committee, Nicola has built a reputation as a pioneer for transformative solutions in the healthcare sector. But pacing the pathway of politics perhaps also explains her quote for life, to never let the urgent crowd out the important. The fictional words credited to West Wing's posthumous vice president-elect, Leo McGarry. Nicola, welcome to Changemakers. It feels like the world needs him right now, doesn't it? That wonderful character never quite made it into the office, into the Oval Office as vice president, but gave that, that great quote, never let the urgent crowd out the important. Tell us all about it and what it means to you. Well, obviously, as you can tell, I am the most massive West Wing fan, and as I think most people in Westminster are. But I think now is a really good time to be thinking about that. We are in the middle of a pandemic. Naturally, the health system is focusing very much on responding uh, to COVID, on making sure that those who are suffering the most in that context are okay. But non-COVID cases, cancer cases, um, heart disease, stroke, it's also important that the health system is ready to respond to that. And as chair of Economics England, we focus on making sure that we are delivering the first ever in the world whole genome sequencing services as a routine standard of care, equitably accessible to anyone in the health service for those with rare diseases and cancers. That is an extraordinary thing. It's hugely important. So while COVID is very urgent, let's not make sure we don't crowd out and forget about important new innovations and services, which will transform the lives of people who maybe haven't got a diagnosis or are just waiting for the thing that might save their lives. Now, I'm sure we're going to move on to both the urgent and the important. But before we just leave the world of the West Wing, I mean, just a a second more, because it seemed to be in such a a comforting era where the world had had answers. It, it feels now that we've, we're living in a world with so many questions. I mean, do you, is it just nostalgia or do, you, or do you think we could be heading back towards that kind of time again, Nicola? Well, I think the pace of change feels like it's accelerated dramatically, but not just the pace, also the scale. I don't think any of us could have imagined what has happened in the last you know, 18 months with COVID. But I think what I kind of really resonated with me from the West Wing was the fact that you know people did make mistakes in it, but they kind of owned them. And what has been interesting over this past year is there, you know, inevitably, because it's been so unprecedented, there have been lots of mistakes made, but also there have been lots of extraordinary successes. If we look at the vaccine program and the research, uh, the clinical research programs, which discovered treatments for a completely novel virus and managed to turn around treatments within record times. So we can look at what's happened over this period as both some decisions which were not the right decisions in the face of challenges which were unanticipated and were coming at everybody with an incredible pace. But then also you can look at it as the right people coming together at exactly the right time and delivering just what the world needed when they were at their greatest time of crisis. Well, it's funny because I'm I'm thinking as you're speaking is that I'm sure in years and decades to come that what we're living through will be the source of of a mini series of the future. And what will it be telling the story of, you know, our kind of brittle relationship with risk that is often played out on the public airwaves or indeed when you hear 
the scientists of the day, like Sir John Bell, who where I guess the message is is we can win and, and science is is the way forward. It's a it's a very interesting time to be living in terms of how public discourse and how our relationship with health is playing out. Well, that's true. And I think as we are looking at news which is coming out at different times, trying to understand, you know, what are the risks associated with different vaccines? How do we understand that for our own personal health? But more importantly, how do we also understand that for public health, for the health of the country and for economic decisions, for going out of lockdown. I don't think any one of us want to be in lockdown scenarios any longer than we have to. And so with news coming out about risks associated, very rare risks associated with the AstraZeneca vaccine, we are trying to understand that as a national conversation in terms of how do I make those decisions for my family, but then how do I make them in the context of my responsibilities in terms of my neighbour, my neighbour's neighbour, the family, my neighbour who might have cancer, my other neighbour who might be elderly, but then also the fact that, you know, if I don't participate in a vaccine programme, then, you know, I might be part of the fact that we might be looking at, you know, a fourth wave this coming winter. And that is not what any of us want to see. And these decisions about risk are the sorts of decisions of risk against benefit for an individual drug or a surgery or any kind of medical intervention that every patient will always have been having with their clinician every time they went to see a doctor. But now um, we're having to have it on a national scale. And this is something that we're going to keep having to have if we move into prevention rather than intervention. And that's something that we do in genomics. We think about in Genomics England a lot. You used a phrase earlier when we were when we were speaking of population level intervention. And what I'm wondering is how does that affect the national narrative? How does that affect how we feel about these issues in terms of the relationship between healthcare and the public when I suppose our our historic relationship with health has been on a very individual level. It's been in doctor surgeries. It's been behind closed doors. Now we have an abundance of information. We're all our own best expert on on the data and what it's showing. Where, where do you think this is taking us, Nicola? Well, I think that what we have come to understand is that all of us taking an individual approach to healthcare, while we have to have individual responsibility, has left us with some vulnerabilities. What we saw during COVID was some stark health inequalities, which undermined our national resilience to respond when the pandemic hit and when you know the chips were down. And the nations which had not had those national conversations about how sharing health data in order to accelerate research, in order to improve prevention, in order to make sure that we could identify those who were most at risk and support and help them. Those national conversations actually um, increase resilience and support people. And the countries which do that most effectively are those that are healthiest, those which promote well-being, those that can intervene earliest, and those which were able to respond in the context of this pandemic most effectively. And we have some gaps in that, which we need to overcome. But also, we also have suddenly got the technologies coming through now, which means that once we've got the insight into where those gaps are, we can start actually providing people with the support and tools to take control on an individual level. So that cycle is starting to close. Let's talk about that, because I suppose there is a point here about how tough those conversations will have to be in the future about health and lifestyle choices and things like that. But at the same time, you are sat at the forefront of the debate about science and technology. You are chair of of Genomics England. Just frame the work that it does as being, I guess, on this front line of the armoury 
here about how science can turn into better healthcare? Well, so Genomics England started in 2013. It was set up as really a research project to sequence the genome of 100,000 people with rare diseases and with cancers so that we could understand better how to diagnose those conditions quicker and target treatments to those people more effectively. And in doing so, you create a big data set of genomes, which you can conduct research on. And in conducting those research, you can develop therapeutics, which you can then bring into the clinic. During that process, one in four of the rare disease patients who were participants received a diagnosis for the first time, and 50% of the cancer patients were eligible either for a new therapeutic or for a trial, which they had not previously known that they would be. And so it's a hugely effective intervention. And we are now expanding that program to go throughout the NHS so that everyone with a rare disease or a cancer can have access to whole genome sequencing so that they can get that diagnostic so that we can understand better how we can improve therapeutics and target it to the specific indications which they have. And you have your own very personal experience of this with a condition called EDS. Tell, tell us a little bit about that. I do. So um, I have Ehlers-Danlos Syndrome, which which is, is genetic, but I was not diagnosed for over 30 years. I had significant symptoms and illness from a very young age. I was on and off school. I missed a lot of school, which the teachers were not amused about. I come from a medical family, so it should have been easy to work it out. But Ehlers-Danlos was not well understood for most of my childhood and teens. By the time I was in my A-levels, I was so ill, I was housebound. I had to be homeschooled. I, I managed to sort of have an upward curve. I went off to university. But I, I was really in between being just about functional and invalid on and off all through that time. And th- this, this was quite challenging. And I bounced around the system. This is really common for patients with rare diseases. They get sent from specialist to specialist. And each, each specialist sort of sees you and they think, I'm going to solve you. And they put you through a whole bunch of really invasive tests. It's completely exhausting. And each time you go, you hope. You think, this time I'm going to get an answer. And by the time you've gone through the mill, either the clinician says, well, I really don't know, but I could give you like another year of testing. And you think, I just can't deal with this anymore. You kind of give up. Or they start looking at you and think, do you think it's anxiety? Do you think it's all in your head? And I had that quite a lot of times. And then eventually I was being treated by a neurologist who just happened to have experience of EDS and treated quite a lot of EDS patients because there's a crossover between neurological symptoms and EDS. And he referred me to a specialist and within 20 minutes, that specialist had diagnosed me. And that experience was just, I mean, I, 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 Transformative. I, I cried and was happy at the same time. It was like this enormous weight going off my shoulders. And this is a very common experience for patients, but it, it's not it's not a magic bullet. I, there's no cure. There's no immediate treatment. And it takes a long time to get yourself under control. I am now very well. And what it has taught me is a few things. One, uh, you need to get earlier diagnosis. Two, we need to target research into treatments for illnesses uh, like mine and rare diseases and those which are harder to treat. And that's exactly what we do at Genomics England. So I'm so proud to be able to play a tiny part in helping the the work that they do and making sure that it's widely available across the NHS. I I was reading a a Times profile of you and and a phrase really struck me when you said that mind over matter only goes so far. I mean, I was wondering in terms of actually your own experience is that obviously you 
present this in a holistic sense in terms of the, the journey and what happened. But I would imagine that the actual internal experience of that, the emotional experience of that must have been enormous. I spent a very, very long time trying to pretend to myself and also everybody around me that I was not sick because I'd had a lot of clinicians sort of questioning me, but also I didn't want to be a sick person. I wanted to be a well person. I wanted to be, to live up to all my potential. And it's actually very, very hard to do that. I felt like I was living two lives. I was living the life when I was hidden away and I was ill. And then I was living the life when I was outside on the times when I was well. And I was trying to be what I thought a fully well person was. I didn't really know what it was because I wasn't a fully well person. It was very confusing for everyone around me because they didn't understand why I disappeared sometimes. And I disappeared because I couldn't stand up. And it wasn't until I sort of, I disclosed the fact that I was ill and everyone around me went, oh, that makes sense. And, you know, I had to take the mask down and, and trust that everybody around me would not think I was weak. And in terms of what, so was the diagnosis also what enabled you to come to terms with this in your own mind? in terms of actually how you could become at peace with a, an issue that you no longer had to fight. You, you, you talked here about how you fought against it because, you know, you just weren't brought up to accept the fact of, you know, lying on a bed of pain and never never going forward. But in terms of actually how you came to terms, how you reconciled a battle like that, was it that moment when you were diagnosed or were there other factors as well? I will forever be frustrated at limitations. This is just a fact of life because I, I hate anything that stops me being able to go 100 miles an hour, 24 hours a day. And so that that is just reality. But I have accepted the fact that illness doesn't equal weakness. And actually, you can derive strength from struggles. And also, the fact that my experiences and the path which I took through all of these different dead ends which I had to take has taught me so much. I know so much more about the patient journey, about clinical reactions, about diagnostics and so on because I have trod the path. And so I think I can derive value from that and I intend to use it as value and a useful experience rather than a painful experience which I prefer to forget. I think I have to say I think illness doesn't equal weakness is a, is a cracking phrase. I think a lot of people will 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 feel really empowered by that. I mean, let, let's let's go back though in your life because I know that your father was was a huge influence. You described him as a, a kind of good father and teaching me so much of what I needed for life. Let's talk about those early days of a cardiologist in Soweto and the influence, I guess, that his life and that experience had on you and the choices that you ultimately went on to make. So um, I don't remember much of it because I was I was being born. Um, but <laughs> well, my, yes, no, um, I appreciate that. Bit, so. <laughs> I, um, <laughs> Obviously, a very intelligent yeah. child, Nicola. That's, <laughs> but my, my so my mother is South African, and my parents were both seconded to Baragwanath Hospital, which was then the biggest hospital in the Southern Hemisphere in Soweto. It served the black community, and my dad is a cardiologist. That's his, his specialty, and there was uh, you know, significant uh, problems then with with the capacity of that hospital for the community that it served, with the pay for the black doctors versus the white doctors who were working in that hospital. But also, I mean, 
he would he will talk about you know patients sleeping between hospital beds because there was just complete overcrowding and he he did a number of things he he firstly campaigned on issues that affected primarily the black community rheumatic fever at that time and set up a national conference uh, to try and raise awareness of firstly the issue and secondly new treatments and he 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 set the date for that conference on the date that I was due to be born which my mother was not amused about at all and then the the issue started to snowball and a journalist came a, a television journalist from SBC came to do a, a movie about the hospital because there was going to be some investment in other hospitals in the area and instead of taking part in what I think was supposed to be a sort of propaganda movie my dad told the truth and he said these are the issues that we're facing which you're not you weren't really supposed to do then it was apartheid South Africa and so he was in all the newspapers and we've got the newspaper cuttings and you know that's my dad with a lovely 70s haircut and bell bottoms and you know his face is over and you know it had a significant effect and one of the effects however was that he was very swiftly told to return to the UK and he wasn't really welcome in South Africa anymore so most of my life was back in the UK where he was equally outspoken and just told things as they were and I think that is one of the things that I value the most about him is he just kind of says it as it is. Do you think that influence though somebody as you say who who spoke the truth obviously was prepared to speak truth unto power at that point I mean you chose career ultimately in in politics and served as a, as a minister under two prime ministers I mean I'm, I'm just wondering about the background of growing up in a medical environment but also an environment where causes and ideas and impact and and making a difference obviously seem to be part of that experience as well. So the principles on which my sort of family were established is sort of vocational. We were supposed to grow up to help people and to serve and to do what we could to make sure that our lives had an impact. And you you would know you might know that I I did degrees in music. I trained as a as a singer and a flautist, and I I spent a lot of time agonising over the fact that I wasn't sure that I was really living up to the example that I had been set by my you know superstar parents. I remember in a I think I can't remember if it was a airport in Johannesburg or Durban. I can't remember, but I very very strongly have this memory of a nun having a cardiac arrest in front of us in the queue to the check-in at the airport and my parents resuscitating her in front of me. This is the example I had growing up, was these parents who kind of gave up everything to save people's lives, life after life after life. And so I, I have this sense of wanting to live up to that example, but also it's not hard to look around and see suffering and see pain and feel like there's more that needs to be done. And so I felt like there was a route through politics that I could try and make a contribution. And once I got in there, I discovered that's actually really hard. I don't want to let, leave the music bit, but then again, I'm not sure I want to take us too far down it. But I've, I've had recent guests, including people like Dame Evelyn Glennie and John Rutter, where they would make the argument that the joy that they were able to bring through music was part of the way they m- made their difference. But you obviously made that decision about the political point and, and it being hard. And it, and it has struck me, I, I, I did want to ask the question about the political side, about did you enjoy it as a minister? I mean, did you, did you fit, I mean, was it, was it hard and unenjoyable or was it hard, but ultimately quite fulfilling? Oh, it's both things. It's it's incredibly, infinitely frustrating, and like you meet these dead ends and blocks, and you the things that you want to do you can't do, and then on other occasions 
you can do something that you know affects the whole country in one sweep and you've achieved something that you're incredibly proud of and so it is both things you do have the ability to make a change that can be transformational and there are things that I'm proud of and there are other times when I think if only I'd pushed harder on that maybe I could have unlocked it and you don't have the ability to do it so you can't always have a clean answer to that question, I'm afraid. I noticed actually on, on your best read, Caroline Criado Perez's Invisible Women Exposing Data Bias in a World Designed for Men. Presumably you would you would take the same view that, that politics is, is a world that has been similarly designed in the past. You're the youngest and the first female chair of the House of Lord Science and Technology Select Committee. In terms of breaking through those ceilings, you, you're at the forefront of that. I'd like the perspective not only of, I guess, a medical activist, but also somebody who is clearly interested in inequality and and the role of women in that? I think youth is often more of a barrier than being a woman to getting your voice heard. And you have to speak up and you have to be persistent. And when you don't get heard the first time, you have to keep speaking. So that's an important lesson which I learned. And I think it took me a little while to be bold enough to do that. I think the other voices which are often not heard are voices speaking up for evidence-based decision-making rather than emotional or political-based decision-making. And I'm really proud of some of the work that we did, particularly on the Science and Technology Stack Committee the first time round, where some of the campaigning we did in order to push increasing R&D investment up to the 2.4% is now not just conservative manifesto policy, but it's embedded across the policy agenda. And it's it's just considered what has to be done in order to make us a competitive nation. But that started right back then when we were campaigning before that, that SR in 2015. But that required building a coalition, getting your evidence and banging on the drum again and again and again until you knock the door down. Do you think, though, I mean, obviously, I, t- I take the point about evidence-based decision-making, but are you discounting emotional-based decision-making in the world which you inhabited, the, the political world? I'm, I'm sort of thinking about some of the decisions that have been taken over investing in the vaccines. People were criticising this country a year ago for investing in fridges and all the sorts of things that have turned out to be less about evidence, but I guess good gut instinct. Is there enough, I, I guess emotion enough passion to make the difference amongst your political colleagues where it's not just the evidence but it's actually about what you believe as well do you think but that i think those those sort of examples that you point out they're based on good judgment which is built on years of evidence-based decision making that's different than being swayed by what you've just read on Twitter or being worried about, you know, what's in the latest polling. So I think that you need to have a baseline of the evidence and then you have to have good judgment. And good judgment is built up by making decisions, sometimes making mistakes, but learning from those mistakes and being able to apply good judgment to an evidence base. Hmm. Now, you resigned from your ministerial position in the Lords in 2020, and you cited family as a very important reason for that. In terms of what a lot of people talk about is that they they will often talk about that sacrifice of, I couldn't be a good mum or dad, I couldn't do the things I wanted to do. I mean, do do you think, has it turned out to be a good decision for you, do you think, in terms of that resignation? Has it allowed you to do the things you wanted to do? Well, I've certainly been able to spend more time with my family. My my stepdaughter is at A-levels, my stepson is in GCSEs. It's a really kind of pivotal time for their lives. And I, I 
couldn't really see them at all when I was in the Lords. So that really matters to me. And especially during the instability of this year, that has been important. I have a sense of regret that I wasn't able to be in the department helping those who I work with so closely up until the point of the pandemic. But I have been able to be at Genomics England. We have been rolling out the Genomics Medicine Service, making sure that you know, those cancer patients and rare disease patients who are going to be needing earlier diagnostics so much because backlogs have been building up over this period of the pandemic will have that service in place. You know, it's, it's already rolled out, but, you know, it will be escalating more and more. So that is really important, I think. And in addition to that, obviously, we ran a COVID trial looking at why some people are more susceptible and other people are less susceptible. And the the system which we've established, which can work with the pathogen sequencing, the sequencing of the virus to look at mutations with the susceptibility trial is something which we can use for future pandemics. So it's a really good infectious disease genome surveillance system, which we now have in the UK. It's probably, I think it is probably one of the best in the world. I mean, it's often these moments of great instability where you see great change happen and you see great social change, economic change, political change. Are we going to see great healthcare change, do you think, in terms of as we move on from or however we move on from the pandemic? Presumably, we will never have the same relationship with our health again or will we become complacent how do you think we emerge from this in terms of our relationship with healthcare i think it's made all of us whether it's on an individual level engaging with our health whether it is at the national level in terms of the prioritization of health within the government or whether it's the way in which the NHS accelerates innovation, that the role of health within that system has been completely reevaluated. And I don't think that that's going anywhere. We have suddenly realised that health is not just something which is important when we lose it. It's something which we need to work on to make sure that we, we keep ourselves well and that we are in a good state so that when the challenge comes, we are resilient and we're able to fight off any challenge that comes our way. A number of the interviews that I've had over, over the previous months a lot of the positivists will will say the ability to create vaccines at record speed should embolden us in our sense of progress that we might make in other areas and i wonder is is this going to be the moment where we say actually COVID actually opened the door to a whole load of breakthroughs in the way that we manage healthcare or indeed the cures to some of the great diseases and challenges of our time. I mean, is this going to be the moment we look back on where, say, it all started there? So what we learned was that we didn't need to change laws. We didn't need to change regulations. We didn't need to change structures in order to develop therapies quickly or to get those therapies to patients quickly. We just needed to decide that we wanted to do it. So we turned around patient trials in days. We approved them quickly without prejudicing patient safety. When we had done those trials in record time, we got those therapies to patients by having leadership, political leadership and clinical leadership through right down to the clinic and saying, these drugs are safe. This is what you should use them for. Use them now. And it worked. And we can do that in post-COVID times, just as we did it in COVID times. We just have to decide that we're going to do it. We have to decide that we won't lose the momentum. And, and hold on to the feeling of what empowerment feels like to make decisions and to move, move forward. We have to decide that we're not going to go back to a sense of risk aversion and put in place 
bureaucratic processes that we didn't need when the going was the toughest that it has ever been in living memory. If we didn't need it then, why would we need it afterwards? Mm. So my, my last question to you is based on your, your best tip, which talks about trust and the fact that every relationship that matters is based on it. Tell us a little bit about the tip and what it means to you and the advice that you give listeners from it. So at Genomics England, we, we work with the most precious data set that you could possibly imagine, your genomic data. And the way in which we can do that, the way in which we can use it in clinical care, but also in research is because we have built a system which is founded on trust with the participants, with the clinicians, and with the research partners. And what I have learned is you can misstep very easily in using patient data. You can lose trust. And if you lose that trust, it's incredibly difficult to regain it. But actually, by working on it day in, day out, because you, you don't like gain trust in, in, in a structure, you don't gain trust in a speech, you gain trust day by day, by every action that you take, by everything that you say, by every every bit of your behavior. And as you continue to you know earn that trust day in, day out, then everything else follows i can absolutely see why leo mcgarry was your inspiration on the west wing because i think that whole story in his character was all about trust nicola blackwood thank you so much for joining me on changemakers that's all we have time for for this episode and we will see you next time thank you very much it'll be great to be with you 